1: What's up, everyone? It is 2 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon, which means you're tuning in to Cannabis Legalization News.
2: I'm producer Lauren, and today we have a true celebrity in the cannabis community on today.
3: Keith Drop, the founder of Normal, is going to be on with us later uh, in about 15 minutes. But first, we're going to get
1: into a little bit of cannabis news that happened this week. So what's going on, Tom? Miggy?
2: Oh, man, I am just so stoked to be able to talk to Keith Drop today. What about you, Miggy?
3: Oh, yeah. I'm all sorts of fanboy right now.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's great. It's great. But we should do a little bit of the news so that we can round it up and then get to Keith's drop. So if you have any questions for Keith that you want us to ask him, leave them in the live chat that we are having and we hope to get to them later. But let's turn to one of the big stories. There was the federal judge in Indiana that ruled its smokable hemp ban is unconstitutional. Do you know why that was,
3: Miggy? No, I didn't get into it, but I, I did see that and then I, I floored it to you just because I always find all these hemp uh debates and, and, and issues and quandaries uh, interesting as we go forward in this legalization.
2: Right, right. And it was the supremacy clause. And so because uh supremacy. The, the, the supremacy clause of the constitution, so the federal law outranked the state law and they uh they they threw out the uh the ban on the smokable hemp, which I thought was a pretty big uh, victory when it comes to hemp news. But then uh, that victory in hemp news was very quickly undercut by what I think is not the best in the world. So Chicago came out with their zoning just yesterday. And they they basically said that they uh, will not be allowing uh, the uh, like cannabis shops in downtown Chicago, like, you know, the uh, the the Magnificent Mile or something. So When you are going to try to find a cannabis shop in Chicago, you're going to have to go a little bit off the beaten path.
3: Do you think it's a... What do you think causes that? Is it beer money or just reefer madness still or... You know, I think it's probably a little bit of
2: a, a little bit of B, because this whole family-friendly uh, aspect of cannabis is not necessarily seen. So I think that they are just a little scared to uh, upset the apple cart that is the uh, the the commerce that comes into Chicago. That's right there. And then uh, uh, let's see this this next article. This is just an article I did for uh, this social uh i'm sorry it's about social equity but it's uh if you guys want you can subscribe to this and i'll be doing uh more articles for this particular publication it is a cannabis law reporter and then i have to like give them so many days before i'm supposed to like do anything besides promote that on the website so i may turn that into a small video blog at the end where i just kind of read it and have a counterpoint uh the other stuff that i thought was really big Hemp farmers are kind of losing their shirts. Have you heard of this where the hemp farmers might face a $7.5 billion loss? You know what the, uh, and then remember how uh, a couple of weeks ago, we actually were discussing the price of biomass and how it wasn't moving. Yeah. All right. Well, we might have an answer for why the price of biomass isn't moving in the hemp market. And that's because the processors have not caught up with the number of farmers. And so there's too many farmers to be able to process the hemp crop. So that's why the uh, the numbers really aren't moving too much when it comes to the the price of your biomass, because it's it, it really can't go any lower as they aren't able to process anymore. But uh, it looks like there's there may be a fairly good
3: oversupply. And but then you know, go ahead. I was just going to say in Washington, when in the early days of medical uh, and, and imagine in every state, they have the same experience where your grower, your farmer, uh, tends to be also eventually they start dabbling into the production side of things, Right. the extraction and whatnot. And so it becomes like a uh, a closed loop system where the same guy who makes it is learns the extraction process as well. And that might help, you know, is that accounting for like people who do their own work or is it more of the outsourcing type thing?
2: Uh, A lot of the people that are growing are just growing, they are also looking for places where who are going to be buying the biomass to do the actual extractions themselves, because the extraction technology is expensive. And you have to really invest a lot of capital into it to get like your, you know, uh, what do they call that hypercritical CO2 extraction or, or some stuff? I mean, that's that 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 is a procedure and it's a lot of equipment and you need the right scientists there to be able to make high quality distillates. So it's it's not. It was the more difficult of the two to open up and get into. And I think the uh, the amount of acres that they farmed this year in hemp and then the the fewer number of, uh, of processing facilities kind of shows uh, that that disparity. And then the big news, the big, big news, in my opinion, is that and we're going to we're definitely going to be talking to Keith about this. Uh, so evidently, Congress is supposed to vote on cannabis banking next week.
3: Did you see that uh, they're asking for them to delay it, though? Pro-legalization organizations are asking Congress to delay the vote on banking. Is that because
2: they didn't do enough on social equity?
3: You you know, as a matter of fact, when you speak about social equity, uh, that little piece that you wrote, I thought that was quite the uh, um, insightful piece where uh, it's a good point where, all this preaching and pleading as far as like you know the suppressed communities should have a, a chance to, to be a part of this billion dollar uh mm-hmm. business but yet because of the uh the boundary the, the 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 money boundary you know uh i myself can't afford to jump into a, a two hundred thousand-dollar business you know half a million dollar you know business what it just a start i mean that's just your, your flat dollar rate really well, that's
2: true, but you have to understand a lot of businesses have uh, a high startup cost. However, that high startup, co- high startup cost is mitigated and reduced because of your ability to access capital. So that's one of the reasons why this Safe Banking Act is so important, because uh, the, the, the capital requirements for the cannabis industry will still be high because it'll be really regulated but you may be able to offset some of those costs by having at least, uh, you know, you could bank it. So just like if you're opening a pizzeria and it's going to be in a substantial build out and you have a lot of equipment just to sell some pizzas, if you're going to be opening a dispensary and it's going to be a substantial build out just to be selling some uh, some flour, uh, but you could at least get a loan and an operating loan and a real estate loan so that you can have collateral and then uh, bank the actual industry. But let's Let's uh let's bring on the yeah. Keith Strop and talk to him, man.
1: Hello, folks. Keith, thank you so much for joining us on Cannabis Legalization News. It's my pleasure. I wanted to point out, by the way, on that last issue you mentioned, Normal was not among those groups calling for the Congress to slow down on the Safe Banking Act. Uh, we agree with your last comment that it really is crucial for the industry. That they have the ability to have uh, bank accounts, that they have, be able to get credit. Uh, they should be treated like any other state legal business. And until they are, um, you know, obviously, when you have a multi billion dollar business that has to be operated as a cash business, you're inviting corruption. You're inviting people to underreport their income. I mean, there's all kinds of problems. You're yeah, inviting well- crime. That's
2: right. All of those uh, SOPs that you have to do in your application to get your cannabis license, a lot of those are about your bookkeeping and your record keeping and uh, your point of sales systems so that you can track all these nickels and dimes because they're literally in nickels and dimes. And so it would be a lot easier for uh, the record keeping aspect as well if they
3: aren't just forced to deal multi-billion dollars in cash. So what did you also say? Safe banking is almost as important as safe access Because it's a safety of both people?
1: Well, I mean, I I would say this. The, uh, The Safe Banking Act is obviously crucial to the industry. But in terms of the average marijuana smoker... What's more important is to stop treating marijuana smoking as it, as if it's a crime. You know, we still arrest 550,000 people a year in this country. At one time, we were arresting as many as 850,000 Americans on marijuana charges. And 90% of those were for simple possession and use, personal use. And that was
2: recently, right? I
1: mean, this oh, yeah, 800,000 yeah.
2: number Six or rec-
1: years ago, yeah. yeah. We're, as I say, we're still over half a million people are arrested every year in this country on on marijuana charges. So we've still got a lot of work ahead, but my goodness, there's so many things to be excited about right now. Um, At normal, one of the things we look at when you get to where you stop arresting smokers and at least in 11 states in the District of Columbia where they've legalized recreational use, then we can begin to focus on things like job discrimination. Nobody should lose their job because they test positive for THC. Um, obviously, THC will stay in your system for days or even weeks if you're a long-term smoker, but you're only impaired for maybe 90 minutes, so we don't want people going to work in an impaired condition or driving a car in an impaired condition, but neither do we want them charged with a DUID simply because they've got THC in their system. We They're don't fired. They to have to fight for child uh, to keep custody of their minor children, but they do in a lot of states if a nosy neighbor complains about smelling marijuana. So. A lot of these consumer issues, normal wanted to attack for decades, but we really couldn't until we first got rid of criminal prohibition. That's amazing. yeah, yeah I mean even with like with, with smell,
3: smell being a, a probable cause, yeah, you see
1: that go away that's like oh, the big issue and and I think there's only one state so far that has gone back and looked at that and has said, no, they're still going to allow the cops to do it. I forget which state, but there have been four or five states. Where they've said, wait a minute, uh, it used to be all the cops were trained that when you pull someone over for a traffic offense and they roll down the window to hand you their driver's license and insurance card, the cop is trained to say, oh, I think I smell marijuana because it, it was it allowed them to search the passenger compartment without a search warrant or without probable cause. It was treated as probable cause. Now that marijuana is legal or in those states where it's legal, the cop can't tell from the smell whether there's more or less than the ounce or two a person is allowed to have. Uh, So The courts, to their credit, are going back and saying, no, 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 that's no longer a, a free pass to search people.
2: And they're they're retiring dogs in Illinois because uh, and then with industrial hemp, you know, you get into the terpenoid profile. That dog doesn't know the difference between CBD and THC. It's smelling the same terpenes that are in both hemp flower
1: or, or, uh, you know, THC cannabis flower. And, you know, in in the state of Florida, uh, the state officials announced recently that they're going to quit prosecuting marijuana cases for a few months until they develop some kind of an effective test that they can use on the roadside or wherever to tell whether it's legal or illegal.
3: Well,
2: I I can share a family secret here from the state of Illinois. The Illinois crime labs cannot differentiate between industrial hemp and cannabis. All they can do is test for the presence of THC, which... Uh, industrial hemp is allowed to have up to the 0.3%, but they aren't even testing for the Delta 9. I think they're testing for the total THC, the THCA as well, because they probably just run it through a gas chromatograph and that could throw it off simply because the THCA that's in the industrial hemp isn't what you're supposed to be looking at.
3: They didn't plan for it. Is that what you're saying?
2: That's right. They have no idea what's going on. Like that article that you shared from the Galesburg, which is just a town uh, 45 miles to the West of me where the the cops were confused by this very nice looking cannabis grow. And yes, it was, it was a nice looking industrial hemp grow for CBD hemp. And so it had wonderful flowers,
3: nice buds. You know, the, the grower was doing a good job. Keith, do you think that with the, uh, I like to call hemp marijuana light and, uh, uh, You know, It's got CBD, CBGs, even THC. But uh, uh, do you think we're at a a point now where we're kind of slowly
1: transitioning with ignorance and we can say, hey, everybody, it's all weed? It's just, you know. Well, well, um, I think for uh, economic reasons, they're always going to treat industrial hemp separately than they're going to treat regular marijuana that people enjoy because they get high from it. There will be far fewer regulations and controls for industrial hemp. Uh, but yes, I, I mean, I do think the more we learn, the more people realize uh, marijuana and hemp were always the same. It was just a matter of how you're using it. If you're using it for the fiber, then we considered it industrial hemp. If you're using it to get high, we wanted a higher THC level. Uh, I might also add, by the way, that I think this whole CBD thing is a mess right now. Uh, most of the the uh, People that have tested CBD products that are sold over-the-counter, I'm not talking about products that are coming from a licensed dispensary, because those, in theory at least, have been uh, tested by state-certified labs, so they should be accurately labeled. But most of what you buy over-the-counter are not what they say they are. Uh, Oftentimes, they have no CBD or far less than it's labeled. Oftentimes, they have more THC than they're allowed to have, so the product is technically illegal. They often have heavy metals and other contaminants. Uh, There was one article I just saw yesterday where they were finding K2 and spice, you know, what they sometimes call synthetic marijuana. We say quit using it because it has nothing to do with marijuana. It's just a chemical thing. Yeah, Uh, they, They had k two and spice were in what they were selling as CBD, that's and that's been a quasi legal
2: thing. Don't you think that this has something to do kind of with the uh the vape uh problem that's going around uh, in the in the THC vape uh industry, the, the black
1: market of it? There, there's no doubt about it. I think that w- with the vaping health crisis that we've seen, to have all of a sudden uh, it's arisen across the country. I think there are more than 400 cases now, and I guess at least seven deaths that have been reportedly based on vaping. Now, you got to keep in mind, there are a couple of categories here. One involved people who were not using any THC products, but were uh, using e-cigarettes. So that's hard to figure out what's going on there. But I'm sure the FDA will come up with an explanation fairly quickly. It's more complex when you're talking about uh, uh, THC oils, because most of those oil cartridges are being sold on the gray market or the black market. They're not coming through state-certified labs. And so you just don't have a clue what you're getting. And what it appears, the one common factor that seems to be involved in most of the health issues has to do with they are using vitamin E acetate uh, to, I don't know if it's to... to. I think what it is
2: like when you when you process these and get them ready to be put into the vape cartridges themselves, you need to use either an oil or they use terpenes for the high quality medical grade stuff here in the state of Illinois. They'll take some of the terpenes from the plant and then mix those back in. And that helps to loosen the viscosity of the cannabis oil uh, uh, into a loose enough. You know, viscosity, which again, I don't mean to use that word again, but uh, that that whatever that is, so that it can actually be filled into the the vape pen cartridge and pass through to where they have the little electric filament that uh, heats it to
1: the vapor point. You know, that's one of the stronger arguments for for legalization. Frankly, even people who who may not generally be big fans of legalization have to have to understand that until it's legal and regulated, it can't be tested. We we don't know what's in it. You're always going to be running a fairly high risk when you're, when you're buying your product off the black market. Now, I will say this, I've been smoking marijuana for 55 years, and I've never lived in a state that had legal marijuana. Of course, nobody did until a few years ago. <laughs> uh, and so mostly, the marijuana seems to be okay. On the other hand, I feel a lot better if I knew what I was buying, and I was certain there are no heavy metals, for example, in it, no pesticides, no dangerous pesticides in it, um, right? No. Now, right now, you've got no assurance like that at all. Well, you know, well even cool. in
3: Washington, where it's legal, we don't have that assurance for our recreational because uh, it's not mandatory for the recreational. Like all the spectrum testing, it's only
1: mandatory for medical. Hmm. So, well, and also I just read something where in Washington uh, they weren't testing for some of the things that they need to be testing for, including vitamin E acetate, because no one knew until a few weeks ago that anyone was using it. So it's true that the testing uh, regimen in a number of these states, but in particular, Washington, apparently needs to be totally revamped. Yeah, I really
2: hope they extend what they've done in Illinois medical because it is great the amount of purity that you have in your product when you go to the dispensary and that safety that comes with it because you know what cultivar you're getting, you know how it was tested. Some of the uh, providers actually provide not just a cannabinoid breakdown, but also a a terpenoid profile. And so you can kind of uh, use that to guide you for what type of experience that you're going to have from it. There's it's no mold, no pest. Decide so. I'll see stuff from like the street that some people that don't have their medical cards are like, no, it's pretty good, and I'll smell it and I'll be like, oh man, that's that's moldy as heck. I'm not twisting that up.
1: Uh. <laughs> well, I do think terpenoids are going to uh, continue to play an increasingly important role as we legalize marijuana in more states. It's sort of like, I mean, I also I'm by druggle. I also enjoy a glass of wine when I relax in the evening, as well as rolling a joint. Uh, but. With wine, you know, we talk about buttery and oaky and all of these words that don't really have a precise meaning, but people that enjoy wine have learned uh, to use it in marketing. And I think it'll be the very same thing with marijuana smokers. If you're smoking because you want some help going to sleep, you're going to want some terpenoids that aren't the same as I'm going to want if I'm smoking because I want to do some writing and I want to feel creative. Um, but right now, we, most of us don't have a clue what terpenoids we're getting.
3: And that's my argument for home grow. I think uh, the more chance the consumer has to be intimate with the plant, even if it's your brother, not you yourself, but somebody you talk to in your circles and they say, ah, you know, I grew this uh, purple haze that, uh, uh, you know, it's got these uh, uh, lemony flavors and and then you learn in your circle about the the plant. It's not so much uh, your firsthand experience, but the more people who have firsthand experience with it, we as a, a, a culture learn, and that's what we did here during the medical days of Washington. They were selling clones and seeds at stores, and uh, I never grew during that time, but I knew a lot more than I know now. Uh, you know, there's a, I think there's a lot more ignorance as far as the consumer goes. Uh, you walk in and just be like, hey, can I have the highest THC level? I mean, that's all you're looking for?
2: right well that's that's just kind of how it is i mean i think that is what a lot of the people are looking for and i've heard people try to overclock and there's rumors of overclocking the tests in illinois because some of the most potent cannabis in Illinois, looks like it's over 35% THC. And I'm just not sure how they do that genetically speaking. But it also comes up to how they're going to be taxing it. So like they've put a line in the sand at 35% THC. And above that, they're going to tax it at a certain rate. And below that, it's going to tax it at a lower rate. And so they've really uh, separated the, uh, the, they're usually going to be your uh, your vape pens or your, your butters or your shatters or your dabbles from the rest of your flour. And the flower will be tax at the lowest rate and I just kind of think that's right.
1: Well, it, it's similar to how hard liquor is handled in this country. You you pay a higher tax on whiskey than you do on beer. Whiskey's a lot stronger. You don't drink as much whiskey as you would if you were drinking beer. And that's the same principle with marijuana. Uh, I don't think people need to be particularly concerned that marijuana today is stronger than it was, you know, several years ago uh, because those of us who smoke, we know what feeling we want. And when I roll a joint in the evening, take take a couple of hits, it's only about 60 seconds, 90 seconds. And you know, uh, you know, how you're feeling and whether you need any more. I end up putting the joint up back in the ice tray and, and usually watch the news and forget I even have the joint because by then I'm poked.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all about the stereotype, right? We're we're supposed to be all huddled up in a corner somewhere.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, joint. Enjoy-
2: but that's one of the things. What's one of the reasons? What we've just described. These are anecdotal evidences uh, of the pillar of the, the Controlled Substances Act that it totally fails. Uh, highly prone toward a risk of abuse because if it was highly prone toward a risk of abu- abuse, it would be much more like a crack pipe or like a nicotine fit, where or even a coffee uh, withdrawal, where you're sitting there and you're like, "I need it. I want it." As opposed to. Yeah. Oh, I, right. I was smoking that three hours ago. I, right. You didn't I,
1: self-administer. I just yeah. use flowers. I don't even use a pipe, to be honest. I like the feel of cleaning marijuana and rolling joints. Nice. I'm an old-fashioned guy. Uh, Willie Nelson's on our advisory board. Willie and I always laugh. We still roll those old torpedo show shapes. <laughs> oh doors. man. We yeah. Don't I, roll them to look like a cigarette.
2: <laughs> that's 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 actually one of the the things that I've taken uh, up the past month. I was hanging out with uh, one of the lead growers at one of the uh, MSOs in town, and he had joints just like you were describing. And I'm like, what are those? You know, like <laughs> I got to learn how to roll that. <laughs> and so, like, and now I'm I'm becoming a snob, which just makes sense because I'm a coffee snob. I like fresh roasted, fresh ground Ooh. coffee, and it's similar in the sense that when you have highly uh, well-cured uh, nuggets of cannabis, just like we were discussing the terpenoids earlier, like fresh ground pepper. And you grind that stuff fresh and you roll it up and you smoke it that night. I think it has the best flavor out of anything that I've ever smoked. And it's it's amazing that now through legalization and regulation, uh, I enjoy cannabis now more than I did 20 years ago when I was uh, you know in college and picking through stems
1: and seeds and wondering where this Mexican brick came from. Well, remember, we used to be, when we contacted the dealer man, we'd call him up and say, do you have anything? Yeah. <laughs> and it was a yes or a no, and we'll take it. Uh, now, today, of course, uh, because uh, there, there's such a, th- a phenomenon, it's called strain tolerance with marijuana. So uh, what people should do is keep two or three different small stashes around and, you know, after a couple of days, quit smoking that and go to a different kind and you'll be surprised. It'll kick, kick your ass. And you, you may have thought it wasn't so good last time, but if you've been smoking a different strain, uh, it'll, it'll seem a lot stronger for a while. Well, it's nice about legalization too. I remember
3: being stuck with an ounce or whatever quarter pound at that moment. And you're stuck. That was it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, now I get a gram here and a gram there. Oh, exactly. I like that one. So I'll buy an eighth, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It it gives you a definitely, but again, it's more deep pockets too in Washington State. You know, we're talking, you talked earlier about how prices evened out. And from what I've seen here in Washington State, quality and quantity still hasn't matched yet opposed to when it was medical, when it was Mm -hmm. medical. And then I think because the competition was knowledgeable uh, with home grow or technically at the time, it wasn't home grow. It was just the medical grows, but it was a lot of people growing out of their homes. And so you had people sharing amongst each other. There was never a, um, it wasn't a surplus, but there was never, if I paid $5, $10 for a really good gram or two grams, uh, you know, I knew that all went into their pockets. Now yeah. these guys are
1: selling gram for $2, dollars two fifty. It's hard for them to compete, you know. Well, and what I, what the pattern we've been seeing is that every state that legalizes the first year or so, it's terribly expensive. In fact, usually it's as expensive or more than black market marijuana. But as more and more growers get licenses, we end up with more production than we have demand. And we never thought we'd see that. I mean, my entire life, there's always been a shortage of marijuana. There's never been an abundance of it. Well, there (laughs) is. And in states like Oregon in particular, they claim they are producing three times as much marijuana as Uh, consumers in Oregon can actually use. So obviously a lot of it's still finding its way to the black market. Ultimately, we'd like to find a balance where, uh, you know, the growers and the the distributors have to be able to make a fair living, otherwise the system's not going to work. So we we can't expect the marijuana is going to be free or going to be given away. On the other hand, uh, I don't think we ought to be paying black market prices once people are no longer running from the police.
2: Well, what do you think about using the uh, the tax margin that they have and the black market price as a, kind of like a line in the sand to be able to uh, take some revenues for the state and then deliver a higher quality product to the consumer?
1: Well, I mean, obviously the, the revenue question is part of the incentive for a state to legalize. So in, in some ways, uh, we have to expect that uh, we're... we're we're paying a tax for the freedom to be left alone is what it it comes down to. Uh, That's a good trade-off. I mean, obviously, if if you're like most of us, you've been smoking for a long time. uh, All of that time, you've been running the risk of being arrested and losing your job or thrown out of school, losing your student loans, spending time in jail. Um, So, It's worth paying a little more for our marijuana if we have to, to number one, know that we don't have to run from the police and and hide and smoke, and number two, to know that what we're smoking is is pure and has been tested in an independent laboratory. Um, It doesn't bother me if the state continues to make money, but I would like to see that money earmarked. For reasonable things, for example, drug education is fine. I think uh, teachers uh, helping the educational system generally is a good idea. Colorado kicks a certain amount of their tax revenue is allocated to the uh, the school systems. Um, it, what it does is it reminds the the majority of Americans are not smokers, only about 14-15 percent. Of Americans are current marijuana smokers, but yet we enjoy the support of about sixty-five to seventy percent of the American public now for full legalization. So, um, in order for us to maintain that support, we need to continue to demonstrate that we're good citizens. We care about our communities. We're willing to give back. We're not. We're not looking to. Uh, you know, be sitting on on the sidewalk smoking dope all day. We have jobs and families just like everybody else.
2: That's right. What is uh, normal's position when it comes to social use
1: then? Well, uh, we think absolutely we have the right and we need places where we can join socially with other smokers. I mean, think about uh, how alcohol drinkers deal with bars You wouldn't, uh, you can't imagine a situation in which in order to drink alcohol, you'd have to stay at someone's home, your your home or a friend's home. Yet that's essentially what we're dealing with right now with marijuana. That's not a sustainable system. Uh, It means that we all end up cheating a little and smoking in the public where we otherwise wouldn't. So, uh, you know, Denver has now passed some social use legislation. Alaska has uh, I think a number of states are close to getting there. I think, didn't I see Chicago's going to going to allow licensing for social lounges?
2: Uh, actually, the Illinois has done a really interesting thing in that they've punted on social use to the municipality. So Chicago has the ability to allow social lounges. Chicago today came out with like seven different areas and it might've been last evening, seven different areas of where they want their cannabis businesses to be located. And they've specifically carved out like downtown. So downtown will be a cannabis free zone, evidently. But they I don't believe they've yet dealt with the issue of the social use. And I've, I'm i my most recent article that I'm going to be sending into the Cannabis Law Reporter or it's like something. Like that. Anyway, uh, it has to do with how you can use liquor licenses as a, a rubric for creating social use licensure, because I checked my, my locality, my municipality of Peoria, Illinois, and it's got, uh, liquor license class A through M, I believe. There's so many different types of liquor licenses, and they can have the exact same type of permitting and requirements that they would have with social use requirements. And so you could have a bar, but you know not a bar, like a, a, a cannabis lounge where sure. you could actually go and smoke joints with your friends as a safer alternative to, say, going to a bar and then drinking. And then there's the, we were discussing the 90 minutes or so that it approximately keeps you high because when you inhale. the, The cannabis vapors, it's just out of your system faster than if you are drinking that alcohol and it takes hours for it to get out of your system and it also shuts down your body. So, the fact that you can take alcohol, that dangerous substance with a long, delayed onset, and it shuts you down and people will actually black out, and you can have A through M classes of how to dictate their public social use. And not one for cannabis is beyond me. And I don't think it's going to stand. I'm going to be helping a lot of municipalities that want it draft those types of ordinances and, and lobbying for my clients in Illinois so that they can actually have a, a place for people to go and to consume. And I think that's going to continue the, to educate the population and bring down the stigma, which is still very much out there.
1: Well, in fact, in um, most of the states that have legalized, they I think in all of them, in fact, they give the local jurisdictions the right to decide whether to allow dispensaries in their local community. Um, now, initially, most of them say no. I mean, Massachusetts has had a problem. Michigan's had the problem. Uh, because they presume that somehow it's going to bring gloom and doom to the community. It's going to increase crime, etc. Now, what we're actually showing, but a number of studies have have demonstrated now, is crime rates tend to go down in areas where you have a dispensary. It is not, it doesn't induce crime. It doesn't deteriorate the the neighborhood. So, uh, again, I think as uh, those people who were raised on reefer madness and who had this exaggerated fear that somehow if you have a marijuana lounge in your community, the community is going to suffer from it. As more and more of those people die, step aside, retire, whatever, they're replaced by younger people they don't have that kind of reefer madness mentality. So uh, that's all going to change. We, I think we have to be a little patient. We're coming out of 75, almost 80 years of prohibition. So naturally there's a, there's a little bit of a hangover left in the minds of older Americans. You know, it was, it's my generation that were the problem. Basically I'm 75 years old oh, and most of my generation, they really believe that reefer ma- madness stuff. Uh, so, I sometimes tell people, and they ask me, how come you guys are finally winning after all these years? Do you have some new strategy? And I tell them, well, actually, our, our successful strategy is that we learn to outlive our opponents. Oh,
2: man. <laughs> so what are the long-term effects, then, of cannabis winning?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. it, uh,
3: in, in my case, it seems to have kept me alive. I don't know. You know? <laughs> well, you know, Tom's even said that legalization and any type of uh, – uh regulation is a long and arduous experience right we're going to go through the smoke lounges we're going through home grows um a new one that i've been thinking about lately has been uh amounts purchase amounts daily purchase amounts i think that actually helps create the black market because you know uh, when tommy chung got busted uh they found a, a pound in his uh kitchen And uh, his wife was like, well, you have a pound of sugar. Why can't I have a pound of weed? And it makes perfect sense that we should be allowed to make these large purchases. for. So what brought this up was there was an article on two vice employees who got fired because they bought too much weed in California
1: because it qualified them as a distributor. Yeah. Well, traditionally, that's right. If you're caught with more than just an ounce or two, you're immediately charged with possession with the intent to distribute. Even if there's no evidence you've ever distributed the marijuana, they presume if you have more than an ounce, you must be the dealer man. Well, yeah. again, that that's all going to change. And as I say, the, the best thing for consumers is to have three or four or five different strains of marijuana so that you don't develop a strain tolerance. You can switch from one to the other.
2: But that just exposes them to liability for intent to distribute.
1: <laughs> well, it does right now. But I think that, that's going to change. Uh, well,
2: let's turn that back to the title of our uh, episode today: it was Cannabis for President twenty twenty uh, Keith. What do you think uh, the future holds in next year's election? And also, talk about the Safe Banking Act and next week, and and how do you think that that's going to shape up? I mean, cannabis is so popular.
1: Well, uh, as to the pending legislation, I think the first federal meaningful federal marijuana legislation will be the Safe Banking Act. And it's because uh, even a lot of Republicans, you know, they're businessmen and they recognize you can't have a multi-billion dollar industry that's a cash-only industry. That's crazy. It invites corruption and violence and crime and underreporting and underpayment of taxes and everything else. Um, So I I think that bill will be the first thing Congress deals with, and they may well deal with that one this year or certainly before the 2020 election. Now, I think for more significant reform uh, and what normal is after, and there are a couple of bills that propose to do this in Congress, we don't want marijuana rescheduled. We want it descheduled, get it totally off the Controlled Substances Act. Alcohol's not on the Controlled Substances Act, uh, uh, tobacco's not on the Controlled Substances Act, and there's no reason to have marijuana on there. We also don't want the federal government dictating marijuana policy to the states. We simply want the federal government to get out of the way and allow the states to do whatever they want. Those that want to continue prohibition for a few years, it'll be like the end of alcohol prohibition. Uh, states had the choice. And there, there still are a few counties in Tennessee and Kentucky where uh, you can't, uh, they can't sell alcohol. They're still dry counties. Well, there'll be a few counties like that, I'm sure, around the country with marijuana. But right. can we call them square counties instead
2: of dry counties? The counties <laughs> that don't allow for marijuana are yeah, the square that's, counties. That's right.
1: yeah. We ought to go back to our cultural link language and figure out yeah. uh, they're certainly not hip communities. That's one yeah. thing. The no fun zones, yeah, <laughs> no fun zones. right. Um. You asked um, about, there was another part of that question. In, in 2020, so like, oh, are yeah. you
2: think more states are going to put it on the ballot? Do you think that this uh, c- continued liberalization or of, of cannabis is going to be the thing? And
1: what about Democrats? Well, keep in mind that of all of the Democratic candidates right now, at least all of the serious ones, um, they all support at least total decriminalization. Don't make it a crime to use and all except Biden of the major candidates, Democratic, favor full legalization and regulation. And my guess is by the time we get around to the convention, Biden may find his way there as well, because obviously it's a very popular position around the country. Uh, you, you know, you got people like Amy Klobuchar that never even mentioned marijuana before, but now she favors legalization. Um, You've got a number of those candidates who are only now beginning to realize that things have changed. You no longer defeat your opponent by claiming you want to lock people up longer than they do for marijuana. There were decades when that was a sure winner, but that's changing. So um, I I think that uh, what you're going to see is shortly after the 2020 election, I think you'll see the federal government uh, pass the bill that moves marijuana out of the Controlled Substances Act. So at least the federal government is out of the way right now. They're not bothering people, but they could, if they wanted to, if, uh, if Trump got up on the wrong side of the bed and decided he wanted his department of justice to start cracking down on state dispensaries, they could probably do it. They could probably shut them down. That's a, that's not a sound basis for a multi-billion dollar industry.
3: It used to be a political suicide to, uh, stand behind cannabis and, <laughs> and being that you're in Washington What's it like now? What? How How have you seen that atmosphere change from staunch, no, you go to jail, you're a bad person, to, well,
1: these states have legalized it? Well, I'll give you an example. For most of the years that uh, Normal's been working, we, start, we founded the group in 1970, so we've been around for quite a while now. Um, we would have, at most, one bill introduced in Congress. We were never able to get a hearing on the bill. It was just introduced because somebody like Barney Frank was a friend of ours, and Barney would introduce the bill, and nobody, the committee chairs wouldn't schedule hearings or anything else. Today, there are 60-some marijuana-related bills pending in Congress, um, and they're beginning now to even get hearings. So uh, there's a cannabis, by the way, a cannabis caucus. It was really uh sort of coordinated and put together by justin strakel who's our political director here at normally he spends his days working on Capitol here hill but we, there's literally a cannabis caucus in congress and i think they have more than 120 members now uh that would have been unheard of at one time if we if we would have suggested a cannabis caucus 10 years ago they would have thought we were we'd lost our mind you know has anybody thought about
3: the um so i work with a lot of people who can do clemency um Uh, the welding project, you know, anything to to help people out. And I know the biggest thing with databases is uh, you can't find all the marijuana convictions because they're labeled, they're blended in with like RICO charges and gun charges. And is there any effort at all to to help and and, kind of all the databases out there are just nickel and dime?
1: Is there one person out there helping out? Well, you know, I mean, I think the, the model project for that kind of thing is the Innocence Project that Barry Shack and Peter Neufeld put together a number of years ago. Um, and it's a, it's a terrific project, and they, they help a lot of uh, falsely convicted people get out of prison. Um, what, what we need to do is to find ways to make the expungement provisions automatic. Most individuals who have a criminal record do not have the resources to hire a lawyer and file a suit or file an expungement petition with the secretary of state or however it's set up in your state. So most people, even if they qualify for expungement, don't don't have the wherewithal to actually get the expungement. So more and more states are now looking at trying to do it automatically where it doesn't require anything on the part of of the uh, the defendant now the problem as you point out is it's not quite as simple what if the what if there was a violent a crime charged along with the marijuana possession. Now, obviously they're not gonna get an expungement for a violent crime. So um, it's not a simple task, but it's a terribly important task. And just as these equity provisions that states like Illinois are trying to work out where we try to make sure that the communities, usually minority communities who've suffered the most under prohibition are not left out in the, the green rush. When you legalize marijuana, If we're not careful, it's all a bunch of white rich guys who get the licenses and friends of the state legislature. So we want to make sure that we allow these minority communities to get their fair share of the licenses. But we also want to make sure that I don't care what the color of your skin was. If you had a marijuana conviction for something that is now going to be legal in your state, that ought to be taken off automatically.
2: Yeah, they did an automatic uh, expungement that they're gearing up for now when the, the law becomes effective after the first of the year, and they created a new thing, a new term of art called the minor ca- uh, minor cannabis offense, and it was possession of an ounce or less, and that one will be automatically expunged. However, the uh, legislature did draw some flack for perhaps an unconstitutionality of the uh, automatic expungement as doesn't that kind of have a separation of powers problem from going from the legislature? ability to create laws and into the clemency ability of the executive
1: well uh, that's an argument that I can I can understand people uh, you know uh, prosecutors wanting to make if they're still taking a hard hard line on marijuana on the other hand it does strike me that uh, limiting expungement only to things like possession of an ounce or less makes no sense at all when you're moving into a system where in most of these states you're allowed to grow six plants or eight plants. You're allowed to possess several ounces of marijuana. Here in D.C., uh, we're actually allowed, adults are allowed to give away up to an ounce of marijuana to another adult. They can't do it every day, every day. They can't do it for remuneration. Has to be a true giveaway. Now, of course, what's been happening are uh, you have these people that automatically uh, now are offering to sell you a T-shirt for three hundred dollars and they'll give you the ounce of marijuana with it. That, what a deal! That's, that's not going to fly.
2: <laughs> and is it yeah. merch? Is it? Are they trying to brand themselves? Like you know, it's like uh, the weed that comes with the T-shirt advertising for
3: the weed. <laughs> I heard they have very expensive stickers in Washington. Pardon? I heard they had very expensive stickers, like three dollar stickers that come with an eighth.
1: Hmm. Well, you know, I, I don't actually know what the what the price is. I, I still yeah. get mine from uh, the black market in Northern California, frankly. <laughs>
2: well, there you go. Uh, I hear that the black market I, in Northern I, I, California I, I,
1: does some good stuff. Yeah, I don't live in DC proper, so I don't qualify. First off, DC is a little confusing. We have dispensaries for medical users, but you have to be a resident of the city to qualify for that. Now, once we get dispensaries for recreational, you won't have to be a resident. So at that point, I live in Northern Virginia, I'll be able to just drive across like I drive downtown to the normal office. I'll be able to come in and buy my marijuana that's been tested by a laboratory. But the reason we don't have recreational dispensaries right now is because Congress put a rider on the appropriations bill about 10 years ago that does not allow the D.C. City Council. Remember, we're not a state. We don't have the same independence that state legislatures do. Every bill passed by our city council, which is a very progressive city council, Congress has 30 legislative days to overrule it if they choose to. So they put a rider that says we cannot spend any of our money establishing recreational dispensaries. However, now that the Democrats are back in charge of the House of Representatives, that rider has been taken off. So we're nice. still waiting for an appropriations bill, the next one, to be passed. and once Ooh,
2: That's get- coming up. I mean, this is September. The appropriations bill is coming up.
1: If they do a continuing resolution, we don't know whether we can...
2: Well, they'll CR this thing, but I was wondering... What do you think about the Safe Banking Act or um, uh, the roebacher Blumenthal? Uh, it used to be Blumenthal. then I think it's Roebacher-McClintock Amendment, which is going to expand the defunding uh, from the Department of Justice from just the uh, state law medical cannabis into the state law cannabis also passing. So because usually like it happened last year with the farm bill. That was stuck into the omnibus uh, spending bill and eventually helped open up the government. So you think that the Safe Banking Act, the the Robacher-McClintock Amendment, and this this pesky rider that's keeping dispensaries out of the nation's capital will all be passed in the next uh, uh, large budget?
1: Um, If if it is an independent budget, there's a fair shot that it will. Certainly the D.C. rider has already been taken out of it by the Democrats. So uh, we we have two bills spending on our city council to establish licensing for recreational dispensaries. And if it's an, a separate budget that's passed, within six weeks, we, we'll have licenses in D.C. But again, if it's a continuing resolution, then it's up in the air.
3: Well, and yeah. I don't know if you saw that, Tom, but uh, Mitch McConnell, the same person behind the, the hemp bill, yeah, he, uh, encourages the safe banking bill here, too. So, I mean, mixed, mixed feelings yeah. here, you know, <laughs> Senator <laughs> Palpatine. It's changing
1: the world for us. Well, Uh, these are guys that were always reefer maniacs. They were always incredibly uh, harsh, anti-marijuana zealots until they figured out a way to make a little money themselves from it or have their state make some money off of it. Um, So we are truly in a fascinating time. It's a great time to be alive if you're a marijuana smoker. Do you think, uh, and I always used to think that,
3: Early uh, medical legalization, like in, in Washington and even in California, I, I thought those were the models that people saw were like, hey, uh, people still want to work. Uh, people still uh, uh, there, there weren't no mad car crashes all over. Planes weren't dropping, uh, but people were consuming on the spot and then going home the day. Uh, we had markets here at one time. We had uh, dab lounges. Uh, it was very an open capital free, free market. And then, uh, of course, regulation happened. But um, I always thought those models showed people like Mitch McConnell,
1: like, hey, you know, I can make some money here and still not hurt my people. Well, by the way, there's no question about the uh, political benefit of the uh, surfacing of the medical marijuana issue. This starting in 1996, when California was the first state to adopt it, um, it demonstrated the sky didn't fall. It demonstrated there were no increase in adolescent use. It demonstrated uh, that uh, medical marijuana wasn't just a ruse, it was a serious concept. And it helped hundreds of thousands of people with serious illnesses found marijuana was more effective than their traditional medication. So um, once those people realized that marijuana had good positive uses, it was awfully hard to demonize its recreational use at the same time if it helps somebody with m s then you know how bad can it really be uh, so I think we wouldn't have gotten from where we were to where we are without the medical use in the middle. It was a, a political milestone, no doubt about it
3: yeah mm-hmm. and i I definitely think that helped move opinions along oh, the way,
1: yeah yeah absolutely and, and then- right now the uh, the age group that's showing the greatest percentage of increase in marijuana smoking are people 55 and above. It's us old geezers who uh, have a lot of aches and pains and most of whom for most of their lives were probably anti-marijuana. But all of a sudden they're finding out that, you know, you got time on your hands. uh, Instead of sitting in a chair and, and being bored, you can take a couple of hits off a joint and go walk your dog for a couple of hours and have a great afternoon. Yeah.
2: <laughs> wow. And, but before, they would just think that that was terrible. And I, do you think the, one of the reasons why it took so long uh, for them to come around was just the amount of lies that were propagated from, uh, at the highest levels of government for so long? And tell us a little bit, you know, in the few minutes we have left, about how you formed normal Uh, back in 69, and started fighting uh, against this type of propaganda
1: that was just so glaring and blatant back then? Um, It was a result of the anti-war movement, uh, the Vietnam War. I graduated law school in 1968, right at the height of the Vietnam War and the anti-Vietnam War movement. And uh, at that point, uh, the only way you avoided going to Vietnam, if you were, uh, were a male, Uh, was you had to stay in school, but at some point you ran out of school and you were still eligible for the draft. So uh, I ended up managing to avoid the draft by getting what was called a critical skills deferment. And I had been hired by a presidential commission called the National Commission on Product Safety. It was a result of consumer advocate Ralph Nader's work. And during the two years I was there, Um, I was turned on to the concept of public interest law. That is where you can use your law degree uh, to impact public policy rather than just helping your clients get rich or whatever most lawyers do. So um, the minute that I was too old to be drafted, uh, I knew I wanted to do public interest law. And I first started smoking marijuana when I was a freshman at Georgetown Law School in 1965. And uh, so I'd been smoking six or seven years by that point. So I sort of naively said, well, I want to I wanna establish a public interest consumer group to represent the interest of marijuana smokers. And so we found it normal. Now, at the time we found it normal, Gallup Poll had just done their first poll question asking the American public how they felt about legalizing marijuana. Prior to that, uh, they didn't even think it was important enough to ask the question. And at the time, only 12% of the American public supported legalization, 88% of the public opposed to what we were trying to do. But over the years, with long, steady work, you could see our support rising. Every every couple of years, we'd gain another couple of points uh, until finally today, as I say, we got between 65 and 68 percent support for full legalization, even though only about 14, 15 percent of the public are smokers. So we are winning this battle not because we have the support of the smokers, we do of course, and that's important, but because we we finally won the hearts and minds of a majority of the non-smokers. So that's why I say it's a wonderful time to be alive if you're a marijuana smoker.
2: Well, thank you very much for your service on that. I mean, we, we really owe a lot of it to the truth. And then for people like you that were bold enough to uh, invest back then 50 years ago and, and everybody else who's come before as well and and to fight for legislative change, because when you are a lawyer, I mean, you do swear that oath to uphold the law. And then you're just staring at a law as ugly as schedule one marijuana. And you're like, but
1: not that. Well, again, I don't think I would have um, felt the alienation from the government, and I probably wouldn't have been uh, emotionally able to take on a project like that, except I was radicalized by the Vietnam War and the uh, anti-war movement. And once you began to question your government's policy in Vietnam, it was easy to begin to look at some other parts of the government policy that we thought were unfair to us as well and by the way during those years when you would go to an anti-war demonstration we used to have four and five hundred thousand people get, gathering in dc for those marijuana was smoked every place it was passed around and it was sort of a symbol to let people know that you were anti-government and people who didn't smoke that was all right they'd take the joint and pass it on to the next person who did smoke so uh it The marijuana smoking became entangled with the anti-war movement in a very positive manner. Now, for some older Americans, that held us back for a while because in their minds, the image they saw of a marijuana smoker was an anti-war protester burning his draft card and smoking a joint in the park. And so it took us a while to get over that negative stereotype.
2: And then the first one from 40 years before that was a jazz musician or a Mexican guy. That's right. <laughs>
1: That's right. There are, stereotypes always work when you're trying to support and, and uh, buttress unfair policies. I honestly think,
3: though, we wouldn't be where we're at without you, though. Without you and normal, I don't think uh, we would have gotten as far. Uh, you kept the conversation alive. You've, you've made uh, the, the injustice. It's, it's constantly always aware. And people I I used to travel as a technician on the road. I met a guy in Wyoming who said, ah, you know, I used to be a part of normal, but then, uh, you know, I got older and, uh, it was just too much for me. I don't think it's ever going to happen. And then a year after that, uh, is when Washington legalized. Um, you know, I, I honestly say it's people like you who've kept this conversation going.
1: You're, you're very kind. Uh, There clearly have been other groups over the years. The first group was called lemar for legalized marijuana. They morphed into a group called Amorphia that raised their money by selling Acapulco gold rolling papers. But the problem with that business plan, rolling papers were considered illegal paraphernalia at the time. So they had to give up on that. And so they merged with normal and became our West Coast office. And I think it was 1972. But there's a, a long history of uh, of people challenging marijuana prohibition, including the Beat Generation and Allen Ginsberg, and a lot of fascinating people that I'm proud to to be part of the lineage. Did you have a chance to read the uh, the rise and fall and rise again of marijuana?
3: I don't think who who wrote that. Um, I forget her name, but it was a brilliant book where you're mentioned, of course. But then she also talks about the the first guy who who got himself arrested for uh, possession. Uh, yeah, I remember back in the '30s. Uh, no, in like the 40s, 50s, uh, I think it's uh, Lowell Egemeyer, okay. I believe
1: his name. It's, it's, yeah, it's, I, I forget too. The, the, there was, uh, in a number of books, they focus on the first marijuana arrest after the uh, the Marijuana Tax Act was passed in 1937, but I can't remember his name right now, yeah. Hmm. So Yeah, and the author of this book is Grassroots, written by Emily Dufton. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know that I ever read the book, but I, I was aware of it when it came out. The The book that shaped my thinking more than any other was called Marijuana Reconsidered. It was written by uh, Harvard professor Lester Grinspoon. Mm-hmm. Um, he's now retired, but for many years, uh, he was the, the preeminent medical specialists in the marijuana movement. He also wrote a separate book about the medical uses of marijuana as well. Um, But no, we've we've had the intellectual support for ending prohibition for a number of years. The problem was getting the politicians to come around. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, part of the way we got around them was by going to the states that offered a voter initiative. A voter initiative is a way to bypass the legislature, but only half the states offer voter initiatives. Most of those have already legalized, right? Pardon? Most of those have already taken action. Most most of them have at least legalized medical use. Uh, So we're now dealing with states like uh, Michigan and Illinois and others where the legislature, well, Michigan was by initiative. Illinois was by the legislature, but we're expecting, for example, New Jersey may still pass a legalization bill yet this year. They're talking about coming back. New York State is uh, was expected to pass this year. It looks like it'll be next year now. But um, we, we've still got a lot of work to do before we get the majority of the country living under uh, legalized marijuana. But we're well on the way. I, I think we're well past the tipping point.
2: Oh, absolutely. Hey, before we, before we, I, I still want to point out, like, you know, just, I, you probably don't remember this, Keith, but uh, 10 years ago, almost, uh, I was promoting my book, uh, Satan Smoke, and I had asked you about some type of uh, constitutional question, and you were kind enough to give me a call back. And uh, I had, it was 2011, because I had just gotten my first Hyundai, which is a day you never forget. And um, so I'm driving to bankruptcy court uh, with my dad, who was teaching me the practice. And then you called. And so uh, it, it was one of my first bankruptcy court appearances. And then you're just you're talking and it's like, hey, Keith Straub here. And I'm like, oh, crap. I'm like, the guy, the, the founder of Normal has called me back and I'm supposed to go into a bankruptcy hearing with my dad here and figure this stuff out. And I just uh, I mean, it was a great mar- rem- you know, memory that you gave me and I well, really well, appreciate it
1: probably embarrassed you in front of your father by calling at the right <laughs>
2: time. <laughs> well again like this was the firm that i joined and then like four minutes later i stopped promoting that book and that's how i actually met miggy and a lot of the people in the movement so uh it was it was uh, interesting to have started and like researched that and i, I researched a lot of um charles Whitebread. uh oh, so yeah. charles Whitebread with the uh, marijuana conviction you bet it was a great book yeah, yeah, and he, so he was.
1: They both, they, uh, he and his co-author both uh, worked for the marijuana commission. And that, right, and that was that was, was such
2: it. a sucker punch right there. That marijuana commission. I mean, they, they lied to get the uh, the controlled substances amendment passed, and then they put that on there, thinking that they were going to actually do something legitimate. They didn't.
1: Well, now by the way. Uh, we did manage to decriminalize minor marijuana offenses in 11 states after the Marijuana Commission. Now, that was it. We, uh, that was between seventy three and 1978. We didn't win another statewide victory for 18 years. The mood of the country turned sour. And when it resurfaced in 96, it was California and it was medical marijuana. It had transformed from decriminalization to medical use. Um, so I, I still consider the marijuana commission have, having been a helpful step, but it was only a half a step. Great, awesome! Thank you so much for joining us, Keith. I really do. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. For real. Thank you so much. Uh, before we leave, can you tell the listeners where, like, they can be involved with Normal or follow you guys? You bet. Uh, go to www.normal.org O-R-G, because we're a nonprofit. Um, we've got over a hundred. Uh, normal chapters around the country. Some are statewide, some are citywide, some are college-based, but uh, get involved in your area. If you if you still have criminal penalties, help us get rid of them. If you've already gotten rid of the criminal penalties, then help us develop a system that treats marijuana smokers fairly in all aspects of their lives.
3: Awesome. And Megan, where can we follow you?
1: WeNews.co, and i uh, here every Wednesday. Tom?
2: Google Cannabis Lawyer. Go to my website, CannabisIndustryLawyer.com.
1: Excellent. Thank you guys so much for joining us, and thanks for watching, everybody. You can tune in next Wednesday for another episode of Cannabis Legalization News. We'll see you next Wednesday.
3: See you then. Thank you all. Thank you, Keith. That was awesome. Thanks.